There's no need for a scientific study to discover that we live in a sexually driven culture. That fact is evident all around us from the marketing and the entertainment that we see in public every day. By way of contrast, in the words of one Christian theologian and ethicist, the Bible promotes a demythalizing of human sexuality, writing, quote, The Bible undercuts our cultural obsession with sexual fulfillment. Scripture, along with many subsequent generations of faithful Christians, bear witness that lives of freedom, joy, and service are possible without sexual expression. Theologian Robert Gagnon agrees, saying, quote, In the current cultural climate, where freedom of sexual expression is often touted as a God-given right, such a claim may sound shocking and offensive, but it constitutes a healthy critique of a new form of idolatry, end quote. This so-called freedom to sexually self-identify any way one pleases is one of the bold idols of our day, and as is true of all idols, the Church is called to bring a healthy critique. In my first discussion with Dr. Robert Gagnon in episode 3 of this podcast, we discuss this very theme. We go back on the line with Dr. Gagnon in the second discussion, and I ask him about the Church's role in caring for those who struggle with homosexual temptations or same-sex attractions within the Church. What is the Church doing well to care for them, and what is the Church doing poorly? and what can be done to improve. This second conversation began when I asked Dr. Gagnon about the sexually charged, sexually driven culture that we live in, a culture given to the idol of sexuality, and the modern church's calling to proclaim the ultimate truth that sexual identity is not our highest identity, and that sexual pleasure is not the greatest pleasure in the universe. Like many issues, we can get it wrong on one end, or we can get it wrong on the other end, and usually we get it wrong on <laughs> at least one of the ends, if not both ends. And that's true of this issue as well. We can, we can underemphasize the significance of sexual purity and the standards that God puts forward for sexual purity, of which, of course, the male-female prerequisite is absolutely foundational on the basis of which other principles, as we noted, have been extrapolated for sexual purity. And one can also go overboard and think that marriage is a necessary feature for a meaningful or secure life when in fact it's not. Uh, it has, for Jesus, penultimate significance. So that if somebody is going to engage sexually in, and have sexual intercourse with somebody, then it is absolutely critical that the certain requirements or prerequisites for a sexually pure union be adhered to. And if it's not, then Jesus is willing to say things like, if your hand, eye, or foot threatens your downfall, cut it off, because it's better to go into heaven maimed than to go into hell full-bodied. And where he says that in Matthew 5, it's in the midst of two statements about sexual ethics. So while it may have a broader reference, it certainly includes at least a reference to sexual purity. And so we have to get that side right. But then on the other hand, he has a statement, of course, that we know, where he talks about that in the kingdom to come, uh, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So marriage seems to have a penultimate significance. Marriage is a beautiful symbol or illustration of the marriage in, in this life at its best, of the marriage, of course, of Christ to the uh, uh, to church to Christ. And, uh, and this is a beautiful illustration of that. But the fulfillment comes when you know, we're in front of God, face to face, God is all in all, and we have unmediated access to God. That's yeah, that will be a joy which will be so great. The church fathers have actually talked about this, for example, when they talk about uh, why marriage isn't absolutely necessary and why there can be certain requirements put in place 
uh, in this life, even if that inconveniences people or even in some situations disallows marriage because of various circumstances, like you don't meet the prerequisites for it. You may love your mother in a sexual way, uh, you, you may not love anybody else, but that doesn't still entitle you to marry your mother. And certain requirements are in place, or if you love two people at the same time concurrently, still the requirements are in place. Um, that's the reason why we have the requirements. Some people look at it almost as if to say, uh, those requirements or commands are only in place unless I feel strong innate urges to do otherwise. And actually, no, that's why we have the commandments. There'd be no need to give the commandment or to issue the commandment if there were not people who had predisposing desires to do otherwise. So, but the church fathers look at that and say, but um, they say, you know, this in the in the kingdom of God to come. Yes, right now we can already, uh, for some who have been given the gift, we can live outside of marriage. Uh, or if you haven't met the prerequisites, then you can assume God has given you that gift, where you're abstaining from sexual intercourse. And and that's uh, an image of, and, and, and then there's not going to be marriage in the kingdom of God, but don't be discouraged by that fact, because marriage is be nothing in comparison to the overwhelming joy and ecstasy that will come with this unmediated access to God. Marriage is going to take place between the bride and the lamb. So, so that's, it, it, it's to say marriage is great, but you don't have to have it. It's not like food. You won't starve if you actually don't have sex. And this statement that Paul makes in Galatians 3.28, neither male and female, is a statement about a sort of, um, uh, of equal worth or value in God's eyes, whether you're man or woman, but it's also a sort of proleptic or a statement that, let's put it this way, anticipates the coming kingdom of God where marriage is going to be subsumed by something greater. And, and so we're not going to really miss anything about that in marriage. We're just going to see marriage as, as the preliminary to the consummation, which is much greater still. And so in this life, the church can both say, um, if you, you need to be sexually pure, if you're going to engage in a sexual relationship, these are the prerequisites you have to satisfy. But on the other hand, the church can say equally, marriage is not the be-all, end-all, and you can live a meaningful, secure, wonderful Christian life and not be married. You've written that homosexual practice is an act of unbelief, even when it's committed by one who is a professing Christian. Explain what you mean by that phrase, that homosexual practice is an act of unbelief. Well, it's an act of unbelief in the sense that any sin, any desire to do, and any attempt to carry out uh, something that God has expressly forbidden is a, an act of unbelief in the sense that it does not recognize the core gospel. That is, a connection has not been made between the proclamation that God and Christ really do love us, and we know they really do love us because God expended the ultimate cost to have his Savior die on our behalf, his own son. I mean, it's, you know, that's people ask, what's the greatest thing God ever did or could ever do? Well, it's, it's not God creating out of nothing. That's no big deal for God. It's God withholding his power and allowing his son to die a death on our behalf and not to obliterate those who are crucifying him. That's the greatest demonstration of God's love. That's clearly the greatest act of self-sacrifice that God could ever make. So, the gospel is communicating to us this extraordinary depth of love that God and Christ, obviously sacrificing himself on our behalf, have on our behalf. We know, Paul says, wow, this is the life that I now live by faith, Paul says in Galatians 2, 19 and 20. 
Um, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me enough to give himself for me. So Paul's, as he also said in 2 Corinthians 5, is absolutely convinced of the love that God has for him. And it's because of that conviction of the love that God has for us that we don't think that when God says, don't do X, that the reason why God is saying, don't do X, is God is out to get us. God has, does not have our best interests at heart. Yet, and I will, I will confess for myself that I've gone through periods in my life, been there, done that, still doing it, in which I sometimes think, you know, because God isn't giving me X, whatever X is in my life, what I think I need to have to live a meaningful and full life, secure life, satisfying life, joyous life, peaceful life, uh, whatever I think that X is, uh, I'm thinking, you know what, God is withholding something from me, and, and therefore, God, you've got to get with the program. So I'm now going to pray to you, and I'm going to ask you to give me that. And, and I, I'm not, I don't really have a spiritual ear here for the answer, yes. You tell me no, I don't really hear that as an answer. But sometimes God does tell us no, and he tells us no because God wants, God wants us to realize in our life that we really don't have to have anything but God in order to lead that meaningful, secure life. And that's, why the whole, that's what the whole thorn in the flesh is about, right, in Second Corinthians 12. Paul prays that God remove this. God's answer in a word, in effect, is no, because my grace is sufficient for you. My power will be brought to completion by the midst, in the midst of your human weakness, not by taking away this deprivation or difficulty, but taking you rather through it. So whenever we do sin, it's an act of unbelief in the sense that we do think, I got it. sinning means I got to get what God isn't giving to me. And, and that's a lag act of unbelief because we think God really doesn't have our best interests at heart when in fact he does. Dr. Gagnon, how comfortable are you with a professing believer who self-identifies themselves as a, as a celibate gay Christian? Celibate, of course, meaning that they're not engaged in homosexual practices but experience same-sex attraction. This label of, of celibate gay Christian, is it, is it permissible for a believer to identify themselves in this way? Yes, I wouldn't. Uh, I would want to know what that, what the person who is calling himself a gay Christian means by that, because I think uh, I think there is a basic understanding of the term, and they may be appropriating it in a way that not most of society does not appropriate it, and they they could be using it in a reasonably good sense. But I think they should probably be informed that basically this uh, this nomenclature of gay. Is is a is not just simply a way of explaining that I have same-sex attractions. It's a way of endorsing and affirming those same-sex attractions as a positive good that one can and should live out of. So it's really a constructed self-definition, which affirms those impulses. It would be like uh, I don't know. I could go around and uh, let, let me put it this way: all men are basically polyamorous. What I mean polysexual, what I mean by that is they don't experience high psychic discomfort over being attracted to more than one gorgeous woman concurrently. Or if they're male homosexuals, more than one handsome man concurrently, I suppose. I'm talking there theoretically, but that's how I see it work out in studies and so forth. And, and, and women have this too to some extent, but it's just off the charts for men. I mean, this is, we can go into reasons for that, but I think most people accept that's true. They did a federally funded study a few years ago uh, interviewing uh, 50,000, 20,000 or 50, I can't remember which, 20 or 50,000 people around the world, first world and third world, industrial societies and tribal societies, and they came to the astounding conclusion that men find monogamy more difficult than women. 
to which I say, what would we do without experts? These are your tax dollars working hard for you, right? They should have just called me on my, on my phone. I would have told them immediately what the answer to the question was. But we don't come out and say men, just because they experience these urges more intensely, should not be identifying themselves as polyamorous, you know, because then it's sort of putting a label of self-affirmation around those urges. So what I'd want to do to somebody who says that they say that they're celibate gay Christians, I'd say first, well, that's good that you're celibate. That's a good thing. Now, by gay, then, do you mean that you're, you're celibate simply because cause you can, for example, in the gay Christian network, some of the leadership there uses that term that they're celibate gay Christians, but they're not celibate by personal intent, but rather by external circumstances. In other words, they're still looking for Mr. Right, and I just haven't met Mr. Right yet, and as soon as they do, they'll be in a homosexual relationship. If that's what's meant by being a celibate gay, then that obviously is an anti-scriptural view of things. So we'd want to say to persons, rather, how about using this nomenclature instead? You're, you're simply a believer who experiences same, unwanted same-sex attractions, but you recognize that these attractions are desires to do what God expressly forbids, and you do not want to carry out such desires because to do so would, to make, would be to make yourself culpable for sin in doing so, and that you understand, rather, that you're not simply a biological robot but God is creating you and recreating you in the image of Jesus Christ to be conformed into his image, to look more like him, and that means not engaging in these impulses or any other impulses to do what God expressly forbids. Then I think it's a better way of reflecting on who they are in Christ. As we talk about homosexuality within the church, I want to bring in the topic of parenting for a moment, because I think there are a lot of Christian parents who are fearful that their children will in their early or their mid-teen years discover that they themselves are more attracted to people of the same sex than the opposite sex. Um, Is there any practical advice that you would give to parents in the church who are concerned about the trajectory of their child's life, or who just want to parent their children well here? I think there's a certain amount of humility that we have to have about what we think that we might know or not know about the issue. Uh, I think uh, it's best, as with some like Stanton Jones and Mark Yarhouse and others who have worked on this issue, to say that causation factors for homosexual development are multifactorial. That is, more than one issue could be involved. There could be some uh, congenital influences we could argue about to what extent they're indirect or direct uh, that could create a risk factor for homosexual development. We can also have uh, macrocultural influences, uh, the, the broader society's uh, take on this issue and degree of permissiveness that's allowed. We can see differences in urban areas and suburban and rural areas in terms of the incidence of homosexuality in the population that can affect that incidence. There can be microcultural influences, family upbringing, not just relationship to same-sex parent, but also same-sex peers. And there can be um, blind incremental choices that an individual can make and issues of personal psychology that can also key into homosexual development. And the amount of which each of those elements may or may not factor in for any given individual is virtually impossible to know. So uh, it may be that certain things can be done at an early stage that might, uh, in, that might make it more or less likely that they will subsequently self-identify as homosexual. For some, there may be virtually nothing that can be done that's ultimately going to change it at this stage of life. We just don't know that. So we have to say that, first of all, we are not God, and we cannot wave a magic wand 
and immediately change the desires that somebody has. We can do things which will, um, maybe I'm not going to say increase, make something more, pro- make something probable, but rather we can do things which can at least be helpful in a direction that might make it slightly less likely that these results will uh, be the end result at the end when they crystallize their sexual orientation. And the best thing I think parents can do is just work, especially the same-sex parent, is work on having an intimate relationship with their child and doing what one can to develop intimacy and bonding with same-sex peers, persons of the same age of the same sex. Because frequently what we have happening is a sense of distancing being created. It doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of what's transpired, but it's the perception of the individual involved. A certain amount of distancing in relation to members of the same sex. And that distancing, the more intense that distancing is experienced, uh, the greater the likelihood, I think, of a subsequent self-identification as gay or lesbian. Because there's this heartfelt need to to feel a union or bond with a person of the same sex, which at a pivotal point in a person's life can become sexualized. Now, this sense of intimacy created with same-sex bonding relationships, intimacy that, intimacy that is non-sexual, may or may not change the impulses. It may have an effect. It may not have an effect on, on a person. But regardless of whether or not it changes the urges, it at least helps to meet a need experienced by the person which is this need of structural affirmation from members of the same sex. What a man or woman, what a boy or girl are in need of, especially at this early age, is not structural supplementation. They they can't really become more male or more female than God has made them to be. Uh, But what they are in need of is structural affirmation of their identity as male, if male, or female, or female, by important persons that come into their life Uh, whose opinions are meaningful to them. So that's the most that we can do, as well as continue to love our child, of course, to convey to them that um, no matter what happens, I'm for you. And being for you does not mean approving of everything you do, right? This is part of the thing. This is part of parenting, right? Uh, Because children are very adept at a certain stage as they get older of manipulating their parents. And if you really love me, you'll allow me to do this. no. Because I love you, I don't approve of this behavior that you're engaged in. In your opinion, what are churches doing well in engaging those who struggle uh, with homosexuality, and what are churches doing poorly? Well, again, I think it's like a two-end situation. It's a, I see extremes on both ends occurring. Uh, one extreme on our conservative end is to almost think of those who experience just even the very experience of same-sex attraction that this makes the person into a virtual moral werewolf. So the, the moon comes out at night and they bark. I mean, this is, this is absurd. And so people who have this mindset, when they then meet persons who are same-sex attracted and find out that you know they can be wonderful and nice people, then wind up changing their entire theological perspective on the issue because they started with a misconception, namely that uh, persons have to be uh, completely moral reprobates Uh, in order to experience these attractions. And that's just absolute nonsense. We all bifurcate our lives in different ways, and we can be good in some areas and bad in other areas. And the areas that we're bad in don't make us unremittingly evil in all the areas of our life. And the areas that we're good in don't validate the areas that we're bad in. 
So we just have to understand that everybody has struggles in their life and to experience same-sex attractions, it doesn't mean that anybody did anything to experience those attractions. Likely they did nothing to experience those attractions. Uh, they may have made incremental choices in life, but they're blind choices, and we don't know that choice A is going to lead ultimately down the line is going to make Z more likely to occur as an end result. So things just happen. We all experience urges that we don't want to experience, whether this is pride, whether this is greed, whether this is lust for forms of sexual behavior that we should not be engaged in, which is basically born to be self-inclined, self-oriented from birth, which is the chief negative orientation. And, and given that, we should have a certain amount of sympathy, we should have a certain amount of compassion for persons that are experiencing struggles, struggles, even in areas that we don't experience. So if we can come with that mindset, then I think the conservative churches will basically get it right. It's just basically oriented towards a golden rule principle, do for others what you would want them to do for you. So if a person is struggling with, how do I approach a person who experiences these impulses? Just put yourself in that person's situation and say, okay, now I'm experiencing these urges. I know scripture says I I shouldn't be engaging in them. I shouldn't be actively entertaining them in my thought life and certainly not behaving in ways consistent with those desires. But uh, how would I want somebody to approach me knowing I have these desires? You'd want somebody to be gentle, loving, that could be affirming to you and other areas, recognize this isn't your whole being of who you are, but also somebody who will be honest with you and speak the truth to you, unlike what society is doing generally. So just putting yourself in that person's position, I think, will will solve most of the problems. And then to take some of the pressure off of oneself in the church and say, you know, well, if I, if I have a friendship with a person in same sex, with same-sex attractions, it's, the burden is really on me to eliminate those desires in their life. No, that is not your burden. You can just relax. Take a deep breath, okay? Your job is not to eliminate anybody's innate urges or desires, okay? Just, just love them as a whole human being. Recognize they have problems. Don't affirm those, the carrying out of those urges. Remember, though, that you experience urges that you don't want that person to affirm in you either, uh, but rather understand your identity as being something deeper than the biological urges to do what God forbids. And the other side, and even now for me, an even greater concern that's arising in the church, even within the evangelical sectors of this church, of the church, is now sort of accepting the fact that, you know what, just don't say anything. It's really up to this person and God. If you think this is wrong, then, you know, just leave it with them. And, and focus on the areas of agreement that we have. Even now the head of Exodus International is saying this now which is a stunning development taking place. This is sort of an Andrew Marin approach to things. Well, this is an ungodly, unbiblical approach to life, and it is ultimately unloving. So take, for example, the case of the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians 5, the man who's having sex with his stepmother, which is not as bad as a man having sex with his mother, but you're holding the boundaries so that they don't go beyond that to having sex with their biological mother. And what is Paul's approach, and what is the approach of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5? The approach of the Corinthians is, hey, let's tolerate it. might not be our cup of tea, but who are we to judge another? Right? That's their approach. Paul's approach is, what are you doing? This, this guy is engaging in behavior that puts him at risk in relation to inheriting the kingdom of God. What you ought to be doing, instead of uh, boasting or bragging in your ability to tolerate this behavior, is rather mourning. And at what venue do you mourn at? You mourn at a funeral. 
because this individual is putting not only his life in this realm at risk, but his life in the next. I'm not even sure Paul says now whether I can call him a Christian. I'll, I'll say that he calls himself a brother. Whether he is or isn't a genuine brother, it's hard for me to say because this behavior is so beyond the pale of what I would expect a Christian to do. On the other hand, I'll bring forth this analogy in the second half of 1 Corinthians 6, where I'll talk about a Christian man who has Christ in him going to have sex with a prostitute. What do you think that does with Christ? So your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're now going to become one flesh in a sexual union, in an immoral sexual union with another. And, and, and you think that this is going to be okay with the Jesus who lives in you, with whom you're one spirit? I mean, think about, as if, think about actually committing an act of sexual immorality outside the temple. That's bad enough. Now think about committing it on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. You think that makes it better, Paul says? No, that makes it worse. It's in your face to God. And that's why sexual sin is particularly pernicious, because it is a holistic body, body embodied union with another. Such that Paul could say, maybe with a little bit of hyperbole, but it gets the point across, every other sin you commit is outside the body. But when you sin sexually, you sin against the body in a holistic fashion. And your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that's in you. You don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. That spirit is now in you. And you're going to commit that kind of a sin with a Christ with whom you're joined in a sort of perverse way, bringing him into this? That's why Paul is outraged over their tolerance of the case of adult committed incest in their midst. So we, we, have, to, we have to recover somewhat of that sense of urgency in the church by this sort of new dynamic that's coming in some evangelical circles and say, you're getting it just as wrong on your end as those who are not reaching out in a loving fashion from what you consider a more conservative dynamic. One final question. As we conclude here, Dr. Gagnon, um, please give us guiding principles that will help us as we seek to reach out and to minister well to the gay and lesbian neighbors that God has put in our lives. I think uh, if we just keep in our heart's mind the illustration of the parable of the lost or prodigal son, we can't go wrong. And it's just a beautiful illustration of the love of a father for a son. The son goes out, spends, spends his share of the inheritance, squanders it, includes the text says even on prostitution as well as other things, dissolute, dissolute living of various sorts. And then he comes, as we know, to a position where of deprivation, which is a wonderful way of getting our attention, where we, we, we don't have now all the benefits we had in the, the, the life of sin that we were engaged in, and now God gets our attention, and the, and the son says, look, I'm not even worthy to be called a son. If he just takes me back as a hired hand, it will be enough. And he returns, and returning, of course, as well as this statement about I'm not even worthy to be called a son, is a beautiful illustration of repentance. He's not just coming back for the other half of the father's inheritance to squander the rest of that. He's coming back because the return is a metaphor for the return of his heart to his father's desires for him and for the life that he should be living. And the problem with the older brother is he can't see that the return is everything that you could possibly hope for, that there's no need to take a pound of flesh out of a younger brother. The father said, well, all the father wanted was one thing. The father knew just exactly the image we talked about in Leviticus 19. You know, you don't, you don't hate another. You don't hold a grudge against your neighbor. You don't take revenge against your neighbor. It's not about you. It's just about recovering your neighbor for yourself. So once the father finds that the son is genuinely in his heart, not just spatially returning to him, the one who was once dead now lives. The one who was once lost is now 
in the deepest and most meaningful sense found. And that's all the Father ever wanted. That's all we could ever want in the church. We're not out to hate those who uh, who experience struggles with same-sex attractions, but rather, you know, it's remembering that we're not, the church is not the Rotary Club. The Rotary Club does great things, but the church is in the business of saving souls. And that sometimes means the hard work of giving a no to desires that people want to engage in, not because we want to be killjoys, not because we want to hate them in any way, but rather because this is part of what whole life is about. And this is and and everything is at stake here, nothing less than inheriting the kingdom of God. So we have that illustration there, and then of course the other great another great illustration is the woman caught in adultery, right? And Jesus says to her, "Go and from now on, no longer be sinning." We have a line like that that appears earlier in John five, just a few chapters earlier, and Jesus says to the uh, the person who is lame and who is healed, uh, "From now on, no longer be sinning," and then he adds lest something worse happen to you. And in the context, what it, that something worse is not just being stoned in this life. I mean, that's only this life. But what's the something worse is not inheriting the kingdom of God, not inheriting eternal life. So that's what Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery. To those who try to stone her, he says, don't stone her because when you stone somebody, you short-circuit the process of repentance. What we're after is the process of recovery, and dead people don't repent. So don't stone her. So he holds in suspension the capital sentencing that exists in the Hebrew Bible for this offense. But he doesn't do it by way of saying that this is not really a serious issue. On the contrary, he says, in effect, it's more serious than you think. Because what is at stake here is not only your life in this world, but an eternal life with God. So you have to extend every possible opportunity to bring about repentance here. And that's why I am saying to her, from now on, no no longer be sinning lest something worse happen to you. If we're governed by these two pictures in our approach, we could hardly go wrong in the church. That was Dr. Robert Gagnon from his office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Gagnon is Associate Professor of New Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and the author of the book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics, published in 2002. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in iTunes or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org backslash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.